It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to October's episode of the Bits and Pieces podcast. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Live podcast team. Now, we might have thought that we were going to get a quieter October after all the drama of September as our new Prime Minister bedded in and got to grips with things. Douglas Ross gave another of his famous flip-flops and decided that this week he was supporting Liz Truss. You thought this budget proposal would turbocharge the economy and it's turbocharged the crisis. Well, there is an absolute opportunity and we saw the reaction from business leaders across the United Kingdom, including here in Scotland, who were very positive about the budget on Friday, about what that could do to stimulate growth, to get more money into the economy uh, and that's really important. But we can't but surely they've been, been trumped well, by the markets, and by the IMF, by the Bank of England having to bail out pensions. And, and as I've said, we cannot ignore that response to the budget and that's why I know in the discussions with the Chancellor and with number 10 that they are looking at this. We've got to, to look at a way forward that gives the, the markets the security that they are looking forward, uh, looking for while also looking forward to grow the economy. That must mean change then. Well, no, growing the economy is absolutely crucial. Liz Truss was very clear about this in her leadership. And at the moment you're shrinking the economy. Minister, but there is information required, needed by the, the markets, by the Bank of England. That's something that the Chancellor is very aware of. Parliament's back in a week's time. I expect there to be statements or urgent questions to the Treasury on that issue and we will hear more of course next week. Do you think there will be any mortgages left on the market well, by then? I mean that's a huge concern. You know like many people calling I'm a, a mortgage payer. Mortgages are being withdrawn uh, at the moment and people can't get that so we cannot allow this to, to continue but we have to look at how we grow the economy. Understandably we are very worried about what's happening here in the United Kingdom but we are seeing very similar uh, But impacts. not worried enough to change anything Colin, from last what, Friday what which I'm has saying, effectively crashed the economy. What I'm saying Colin is we are seeing very similar impacts in the European Union. We're seeing very We're seeing nothing like this. No, we are seeing in terms of the strength of the euro plummeting. We have seen that, and we've also seen the strength of the dollar go extremely high. People not being able to pay back their mortgages because of the massive increase in the interest yeah, rates and, they're and, facing. We're not seeing that in other countries and, and at the moment. E- that's exactly the point I'm seeing, that the government are not ignoring this. They are looking at this. They're looking at how they can respond to give that assurance to, give that assurance to the markets. Because in what terms we of want mortgages, do, they have created this current crisis. What we need to do is provide that security and that certainty to the markets going forward to allow us to continue with the plans for for growth across the economy because if we can get growth up and productivity up here in Scotland and across the UK then the country will be better. Do you still have confidence in the Prime Minister and the Chancellor? Yes, I do have confidence in the Prime Minister. It's clearly uh, a very difficult time. We've heard from the Prime Minister uh, earlier on today. We've heard from the Chancellor uh, and I'm sure at conference we'll hear more from both and others about how we support the country, how we grow the economy. But over on Twitter, Peter Stefanovic was not sharing Douglas's optimism, and neither were the markets. I believe in fiscal responsibility. Seriously? Now, the feedback we get from investors is that they consider the UK uninvestable as long as there is such government chaos. Now, Liz Truss's wild first month saw policies and U-turns that resulted in £300 billion being wiped from the nation's stock and bond market. Other investors see the disorder as an opportunity because shares have become cheap. It gets better. The Conservative Party will always be the party of low taxes. We've currently got the highest tax rates for 70 years in our country. In fact, the Conservative Party broke its own manifesto pledge not to raise taxes. Read my lips, we will not be raising taxes. And now the con continues. 
The Institute for Fiscal Studies has found that households will actually lose more over the next three years than they will gain from Tory cuts to personal taxes. Households will lose £2 in a government stealth tax rate for every £1 gained under Liz Truss's plans. The Prime Minister's mini-budget included reductions in national insurance contributions and a 1p cut to the basic rate of income tax. But these cuts come during a four-year freeze to income tax thresholds. You have dragged very low earners into the 20% tax bracket and before they didn't pay any tax. And many other tax and benefit thresholds and values are frozen indefinitely. These freezes far more than outweigh the government's headline policies like a 1p cut to the basic rate of income tax or the reversal of the health and social care levy and are set to drag millions more into the tax system. It's just giving with one hand and taking away with the other. I know this is what people want to see. While the rest of us put another jumper on and tried to stave off the moment when the central heating might go back on. We've already heard this thing of 20,000 Scots who've died over the last eight years due to austerity. We are going to see more of that. Things like energy, basically, and water and food are things you need to live. And the problem is, here in Scotland, we provide two-thirds of the UK's gas. We provide a quarter of its green electricity. And we have zero powers, zero powers over energy or over our natural resources. If we were controlling that, we would be able to set prices at a reasonable level. We're not exposed to Russian gas. The, the UK is barely exposed to Russian gas. Wind isn't any more expensive. Or it's not even any more ex- Yes, because we allow the market to have a completely free reign. So okay. people who take the gas and electricity out of Scotland's natural resources get to sell it at the top of the market right. price. Stephen Flynn, you wanted to make a quick yeah, point, I think. Just, quick just, point. just briefly, Johnny, I, I get really frustrated when we talk about energy, and that's for a reason. I represent Aberdeen, which you know, many of you will probably be aware is the oil and gas capital of Europe. But Scotland as a whole produces more oil and gas than we consume. We have 25%, 25% of the entirety of Europe's offshore wind capacity, 25% of the entirety of Europe's offshore tidal capacity and yet we are consistently told by UK government and people living in Scotland are having to face this at this moment in time that their electricity and gas bills are going through the roof. It is absolutely absurd and what's particularly absurd in the Scottish context is that just 14.4% of electricity is generated through gas production yet it is gas which dictates how the price that people in their houses are paying for their electricity. Why is the government not separating out gas and and renewables. It should have been done years ago and it should be done immediately at this moment in time to protect consumers. And of course, Ofgem is at the heart of setting those prices. And because they treat the UK as a single energy market, that means that despite us producing all the energy in Scotland, people pay the highest price for energy in the UK. And that's because we are subsidising the 40% of England, which gets its power from burning gas. Just in the Sunday papers today, Scottish households are going to be paying up to £100 a year each more because they're going to build power stations in England. We don't support nuclear power generation, but we're having to pay for the country next door to do it. Another benefit of independence is getting out of that dysfunctional UK energy price market. 
Scotland's energy situation was well summed up in uh, a tweet by J.B. Whitesnake, which said, Scotland has a population of less than 6 million people, yet its resources generates enough electricity for 25 million citizens every day, which is transferred to England and then sold back to Scottish consumers, who are then charged the highest prices in Europe to use their own energy. Well, that just sets it out, doesn't it? Meanwhile, breakfast time thought they'd come up with the answer to all the financial woes of the UK. Care to guess where they would make savings? Are you cutting the budget for um, the independence referendum? Uh, well, of course, we're talking about this financial year. An independence referendum, I hope, will be in the next financial year. So even if we did, which we're not going to because I was elected as First Minister on a commitment to an independence referendum, that's democracy. I was elected with a record share of the vote in the Scottish Parliament elections last year on a record turnout. So we're going to deliver uh, on that commitment to people. But even if you want to look at that in the very narrow sense, stopping something that would incur expenditure in the next financial year is not going to help us in this financial year. But further than that, it would uh, completely undermine the democratic mandate that we have. Incidentally, it's also a tiny, tiny proportion uh, of the overall Scottish Government budget. It also seemed that Liz Truss, new Prime Minister, had been just so busy crashing the economy that she'd forgotten to pick up the phone to either First Minister of Scotland or Wales. Of course, she's the fourth Prime Minister I've uh, worked with since I've been First Minister. I've sought to have a constructive relationship with all of them, notwithstanding the very, very deep political differences that we have. I will do the same with Liz Truss. I've not yet had uh, a phone call with her, which is uh, you know, actually unprecedented. I uh, had early phone calls with all of the, the other Prime Ministers in, in my time as, as First Minister. I hope we will meet soon. Uh, but, you know, that the ball is in our court. I had a very uh, quick exchange with her uh, during some of the, the services for Her Majesty the Queen uh, after uh, her, her sad death. But I will do my best to, to be constructive in that relationship. But to come to the earlier part of your question, you said it's been a difficult experience for her. I, I think I'm more concerned uh, about the experience uh, for the public uh, of her short tenure as Prime Minister. It has been utterly catastrophic. Uh, the decisions that she and her Chancellor have taken sunk the pound brought pension funds to the brink of collapse, have crashed the mortgage market, you know, mortgages withdrawn from the market, put back at exorbitantly high rates. You know, this has been absolutely devastating for mortgage payers, for people uh, paying other debts, for those already struggling with the cost of, of living. This government, this UK government is doing real, and I fear lasting damage to the UK economy and to the very fabric of UK society. We're now told there's further austerity cuts coming, and they can't even give a commitment not to erode uh, the incomes of those on benefits, in other words, those at the very end of the income spectrum. It's unconscionable. Uh, and of course, nobody in the UK voted for this direction that Liz Truss has taken, uh, but that's particularly true in Scotland. Uh, we never vote Tory. We haven't voted Tory in my lifetime, and yet all of these policies, uh, including if we go back a bit further, Brexit, are being imposed on us with yeah. great damage. And that is why, as we saw in opinion polls yesterday, support for independence for Scotland is rising. But the question that really put the press into a feeding frenzy was when the First Minister was asked whether she'd prefer a Labour or a Tory Prime Minister. Well, that was an easy question, she said. She detested the Tories. Well, it seems that the only thing worse than crashing the economy, impoverishing your citizens and sending desperate people to Rwanda is admitting that you find those things objectionable. 
and the world's press demanded apology. And here's what they got. The First Minister made clear yesterday that she detests the Conservatives' policy approach and the policy programme they're taking forward. And no wonder that's the case, given the damage, the wreckage that's been done in the course of just the last couple of weeks by the latest uh, steps taken by the Trust Government in that disastrous mini-budget that has sparked such financial hardship for individuals. And then you build on on top of that the lack of action to tackle the cost-of-living crisis, which has symbolised the inaction of the Conservative government, where people are genuinely suffering in our society. So uh, I quite understand the perspective the First Minister has set out and why she expressed herself the way she did. The, the First Minister said that she detested Conservative policies and, what, and the values of the Conservative Party, and I, I associate myself with those comments because I think what's clear is the Conservatives are taking the United Kingdom in a direction which is profoundly damaging for many people in our society. It's going to strengthen inequality within our society. It's going to essentially take resources from the poor in our society to give them to the rich. Now, I don't want to be associated with that type of policy approach, and the First Minister very clearly was setting out what her perspective is on that yesterday. Within probably about an hour of it first being tweeted, the hashtag I Detest the Tories had had 34,000 likes, T-shirts had been printed, and a new meme was born, which had the desired effect of riling up the unionist media even more. Will you apologise for those comments today? Um, I was talking about policies and values of the Conservative Party that right now, and for much of my life, have done real damage to people. People in the kind of communities I grew up with, in and people right now. This is a Conservative Party that is proposing, was proposing, to give tax cuts to the richest. Doesn't sound like an apology though, First Minister. We're at an SNP conference right now, and if the biggest controversy is that I don't like Conservative policies... You said you detested the Tories, everything they stand for. I don't like what the Tories stand for. I've spent my entire political career arguing against, standing against everything the Tories stand for. There are people right across this country of Scotland, right across the UK right now, that because of Tories policies are unable to heat their homes and feed their children. So I will not apologise for saying that I stand against those kind of policies. I think many people, certainly most people in Scotland, and I suspect growing numbers of people across the UK, would take a very similar view. Is it a gaffe? Because it has attracted all this attention. Look, you're surrounded by cameras. You're live on TV. Yeah, well, it's great that I'm live on TV, but I'm at an SNP conference right now. If you told me last week that the big controversy out of the SNP conference would be that I had said that I didn't much like Conservative Party policies, then I might have thought the rest of the conference must be going really well if that is the story out of the conference. I spent a political lifetime arguing against the Tories. I grew up in the west of Scotland in the 1980s. There are people that I grew up with that are still living with the damage the Tories did then, and they're doing it all over again. So in answer to your question, will I apologise for saying uh, that I don't support and don't much like the policies of the Conservative Party. No, I won't. I've got a duty as First Minister to stand up against. Still no apology forthcoming. So Unionist radio show, I'm not sure which one, Cole K maybe, took matters into their own hands and decided to do some stirring. I'm not trying to stir it up here, but on the line we have Ethan uh, Godsey, who's a co-chairman of the Aberdeen University uh, Conservative uh, Society. Good morning, Ethan. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. And I have to assume you detest Ethan. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm very sorry to hear that. Oh, 
I, I really have got nothing. Um, I don't. I don't care that you're sorry, quite honestly. I was at an event recently and I said that to somebody and they said you can't possibly see that and that you would fall out with somebody for being a Tory. And I said, no, I can't. You see, if I found out one of my friends were racist, I'd fall out with them. So if I find out they hate poor people, why would I not distance myself from them? Well, you can't argue with that, can you? Now, Nicola Sturgeon in the earlier clip made the point that she was at SNP conference. Of course, we've just had the Greens and Alipa, as well as the SNP, have all had conferences over the half-term period. I'm not covering them in this podcast because we've covered the main keynote speech from all three of them as a podcast in its own right. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll be rolling those out. There's such a lot going on just now that we're doing a lot of bonus Tuesday as well as our normal Friday slot. So don't forget to check midweek and just make sure you're not missing anything or subscribe and that way you won't miss anything. As we know, it is one of the rules of dog whistle politics at Westminster that at every opportunity they must make some comment about Scottish education. Not just an unfair comment, also an illogical one. How could we have the best educated workforce in Europe if our education system was so awful? And it's a source of much frustration to me that we don't get our MPs standing up and making that point. However, there was a great quote at the SNP conference from Shirley Ann Somerville, who is the Minister for Education, and she gave some fantastic feedback, which deserves to be shared more widely. And we're going to follow this with another success story of Danoon Grammar School, and yet again, the Tories' Pavlovian response. Thanks very much and good morning conference and it really is such a pleasure to be back when we can all see each other face to face and meet each other in the corridors and I have been particularly struck as I was uh, forewarned about this uh, before conference just how many members we have who are teachers uh, and just how many have taken the opportunity over the past uh, couple of days uh, to stop me uh, as we're going around conference and be able to share their views on education. That is so important to me as the Cabinet Secretary that we have that discussions directly with frontline teachers um, and with party members. So it's been absolutely fantastic to be able to have that opportunity. And I'm sure many um, of the rest of you will uh, be taking that chance up today if you're not back um, teaching, considering we're back on a Monday. But we have a lot to be proud of in education. And you might not really see that, funnily enough, when you listen to our political opponents or when you read a lot of the media. But I think it is very, very important that we remind ourselves that we do have a world-class education system here in Scotland. You look at what is told to us by the OECD, by the International Council of Education Advisors, they recognise the good work that happens day in, day out in Scottish education. The fact that we've got the highest proportion of adults in tertiary education anywhere in the EU, that we're actually scored fourth highest in the world by PISA on global competence, the fourth highest in the world. Now, you're not going to read that many times in our papers um, and hear that much in debate, but it's important we recognise that. You've also got the fantastic work that's already been put in place around early learning and childcare with our 11.40 hours. Uh, That is by far and above uh, the most ambitious programme uh, that we have um, in the UK. And of course, we're not stopping their conference, as you know. 
We've had one of the biggest successes as well when you look at how many people and from some of our poorest communities that are actually in ed education and higher education. So you've got the Commissioner for Fair Access, so someone that is entirely independent of government, saying in his last report that this was an unambiguous success for Scotland. That's what's happening in Scottish education, and that's a record that this government can be exceptionally proud of delivering for the people of Scotland. Mr Deputy Speaker, I'd like to draw the Leader of the House attention, indeed the whole House attention, to early day motion 480, which was published this morning. It congratulates Darun Grammar School, which yesterday was awarded the 2022 World's Best School Prize in the Community Collaboration category. I hope to arrange a visit to this Parliament very soon from the school. But before that, would the Leader join me in sending her congratulations to Head Teacher David Mitchell, his staff and all the pupils of Darun Grammar School on this remarkable achievement, which you can imagine is a source of huge pride for the town, indeed everyone in Argyllan Butte, and is a real triumph for Scottish education. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I'm going to enter into the spirit of his uh, question and not uh, comment in depth about the SNP's uh, uh, track record in education, but what a wonderful achievement! And I do send my congratulations to uh, to David Mitchell, uh, all his staff and pupils, and uh, I hope they will celebrate. Uh, prime Ministerial candidate Penny Mordaunt then. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Well, we turn our attention now to the other big event that was happening this month, which is, of course, the Supreme Court hearing as to whether the Scottish Parliament is able to legislate for a referendum. And for a case with such potential ramifications for the Constitution and the future of the nations on these islands, I have to say it was hard work listening to the Supreme Court TV. The pace, the tone, the language, it was deadly, deadly dull. However, Joanna Cherry was there on day one and she was interviewed outside the Supreme Court to get her thoughts on the first day. Of course, she was in the middle of busy city centre London traffic, so there's a lot of background noise. But I think we can make out what she's saying. It was originally my idea to test the question of whether the competence, whether the Scottish Parliament had the competence to hold an advisory referendum. I've not been involved in uh, the legal advice in this case. Uh, the case is led by the Lord Advocate on behalf of the Scottish Government, as is proper. But the SNP uh, have also uh, made an intervention in the case. And it's fair to say that I've discussed the terms of that intervention with the First Minister. You're in the optimistic camp on this, cautiously optimistic, saying that we think we might get this passed. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, I think Professor Aileen McCarg, who of course is an academic and a, an independent observer, she's pointed out that uh, the outcome of constitutional cases is, is rarely very predictable. And I know that from my own experience, because I led the case about the unlawful prorogation in Scotland. Of course, the chattering classes, both north and south of the border, all said we'd lose that case. In the end, we run it uh, flat out, uh, unanimously, uh, both in Scotland and in the building uh, behind me. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic. And uh, what, I'm, what I'm hoping is that uh, the UK Supreme Court uh, will look not just at the interpretation of the 1998 uh, Scotland Act in very black letter law terms, but they'll also look, also look at it in the wider constitutional context. Um, Scotland's right to self-determination, which is well established under international law, uh, respect for the Scottish government's mandate, 
uh, obtained at the last uh, general election, and principle of democracy, which I was taught when I was at law school, is central to the British Constitution. Mm -hmm. Do you take any position on the sort of maybe contradictions in the SNP submissions to the Supreme Court versus that of the Lord Advocate? Lord Advocate kind of saying, essentially, allow us this because it's a glorified sort of opinion poll. The SNP say this is fundamental to the human rights of people of Scotland. Do you see a kind of contradiction? Well, I, don't in those think I don't think they're contradictory. I think they are complementary. Uh, the Lord Advocate has set out in her written submission the case for and against the interpretation of the 1998 Scotland Act, uh, which, um, which is central to this case, and she'll put the case for uh, this morning. The SNP's written submission complements that by stressing the sort of principles I was talking about a minute ago, respect for government's mandates and the principle of democracy, which, as I say, it should be uh, central to the uh, British Constitution. It's also worth uh, noting that in an interesting article written by a couple of legal academics last week, the Supreme Court really ought to make some wider comments about the constitutional context of this case. Oh, well, I hope you managed to make that out among the uh, motorbikes and the sirens. It just makes me feel glad to be living in rural Clackmannanshire. And with a little more description about the events of the day, here's Bernard Ponsonby. So, Bella, this is, this is clearly a legal issue, but one where law and politics clash. Uh, they absolutely clash. Many of the comments which the Lord Advocate made this afternoon were suggestive that a bill which consulted would be legal because a referendum cannot bind a government. And at one point I did think to myself, she's making quite a good job of arguing that a consultative referendum is lawful, so why didn't she just say to the Scottish government the proposed legislation is lawful, just got on with it? But she resiled from that position, which is why we're at the uh, Supreme Court uh, today and tomorrow. But in summing up, uh, Dorothy Bain uh, Casey made the point that the government does have a mandate to pursue what it's pursuing. Now, we don't know exactly when the court case is going to produce a decision, but Leslie Riddick has decided that whatever happens, whenever it happens, we must respond. She has set up a website called timeforscotland.scot. Essentially, you just register your interest on this, give an email address. When we find out that the decision is imminent, an event is being constructed behind the scenes and it will be launched in Holyrood or at Holyrood just to show that we're interested. This is something of huge significance to the people of Scotland. So I think Leslie's absolutely right. We've got to show the world that we're interested. And it's one of these events where, OK, we know the UK media is probably not going to pay it any attention, but there's a lot of other media across the world that are keeping a close eye on things. So this is a great initiative by Leslie, and we'd encourage you to, to sign up if you if you want to be. There will be events outside of Edinburgh as well, and I think those are being coordinated through Yes Groups. Here's Leslie to explain a bit more. There are apparently 8,000 8, pages, and oh. at the beginning they said it would be months, possibly, before yes. they came to a verdict. They've got two days where they'll be hearing evidence. That's today and tomorrow. And so anybody who thought this would gonna, you know, pop out the other end very quickly, probably not. Um, and even that initial decision about whether or not it's within their jurisdiction to make a decision, that one possibly won't happen for weeks and months. So the point of this, folks, is still the same, um, which is 
please. We have got time to get ahead of ourselves and get organized so that we have everyone signed up uh, via the website timeforscotland.scot. Sign up there to be given an email alert of when the end is finally nigh. And whatever the outcome, whether it's a we canna do it or gone yourselves, it's legal or you canna have a lawful referendum. All of those are opinions about the future of Scotland, which independent supporters must show they care about. Not to say that the judges are, are, are not entitled to make an, a, law, a legal ruling, but to get out and have a response to the political consequences of it, because we are the Scottish people, we are sovereign, and how on earth can we express our sovereignty if this case goes against the Scottish Parliament? If it goes for it, dancer, because then <clears throat> it's game on and we're starting a campaign. Either way, why would you be sitting with your slippers on? So then just go to that website, please, because we're all volunteers. We've all got other things to do. And the way you make it easy for us to be able to alert people quickly is by just putting your name into the system. And then we will have that event and it will be a good one with Piper's. Well, we've signed up. We're certainly intending to be there and maybe cover it for the podcast and possibly even film it for one of our YouTube shows. Now, whilst there might be some people who still aren't convinced that independence is the way to go, you wouldn't think that there was anybody left who didn't understand why we have a mandate to ask ourselves the question. And yet, my MP, John Nicholson, managed to find someone. So here he is having a conversation with somebody, I'm not sure who, and turning the tables on them quite nicely. Well done, John. Every single country, and we hear this all the time from politicians across the political spectrum, believe in the right of countries to self-determination. I have never heard... But people say they've had that. Scotland has had that right, and they lost. But but democracy is not a one-day process. But it was only 2015. 2024, I mean, this is, this is just eight, eight years later. Margaret Thatcher, I mean, history, as you know, you know is... It, it, well, we have elections every four years, sometimes election every well, two years, two because years people are entitled to change their mind. That's the nature of democracy. Now, if you were a 15-year-old uh, who wasn't able to vote at the last uh, referendum, you're now in your mid-20s. You don't want to listen to people telling you that your parents had their democracy, so you're not entitled to have your democracy. It, evol- it evolves. And we know this is a passion in particular for for young people. Uh, And I would say to unionist politicians, if they think that the union is worth having, fight for it, defend it, argue uh, for it. Don't say you're not entitled to express your view on it. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. This month saw the launch of the third of the Scottish Government series of papers in support of independence. This one is called A Stronger Economy with Independence and is by far the meatiest so far. You can read the paper on the ScotGov website under the Building a New Scotland series. As usual, it was launched with a press conference. Uh, As far as I'm aware, it wasn't covered on mainstream media. So we have done a podcast version of the whole press conference, which actually went out last Tuesday. If you have a look on Scottish Independence Podcasts, it should be the episode before this one, or have a look on our website, podcasts.independencelive.net, and you'll find all our stuff there. 
too meaty a topic to squeeze into a bits and pieces podcast, but we have had a very interesting interview with Dr. Tim Rideout and Ian Stewart from the Scottish Currency Group, who came into the studio to chat us through their response to the paper. As you would imagine, there's some areas of agreement and approval. There's other areas where they're not quite so sure, but it's quite an interesting discussion. There will also be a podcast version of that discussion in the next couple of weeks. But just to whet your appetite, we do have a short clip from Mary Spowage, who's the director of the Fraser of Allender Institute, and here's what she thought of it. There's no doubt that, you know, if you look at um, the economic output of Scotland, that it absolutely could be a successful independent country. Um, the the questions that um, have not been addressed by the paper are more about how we, we sort of transition from, from the current levels of spending and revenue to, to this, this vision that the Scottish Government have set out of a, a country that's fiscally credible and, and, and working within fiscal rules. So they, they put in quite a lot of detail about those fiscal rules but not necessarily about how um, Scotland could transition to work within those. But but you would agree with Bill that there is absolutely no question that Scotland can be a successful and prosperous independent country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Scotland is a is a very rich country. Um, if you compare it to other nations, even if you exclude. Um, economic activity associated with oil and gas. Um, you know, it is definitely um, a very rich country. It's you know generally in the OECD top 20 if you look at these figures. So you know, absolutely, it could be a successful country. That doesn't mean that there aren't you know legitimate questions to ask about how we we transition in the early years of independence, given this um, sort of structural deficit we have between mm. revenues and spending. Mm. Back at Westminster. The Liz Truss government, with her disastrous budget, is the talk of the steamy, and it just all seems to be falling apart all round her. Uh, here's Mary Black to give us an insider view from Westminster. I've, I've struggled to understand why the Conservatives keep getting elected uh, into government, because uh, I'm like, are people not seeing what I'm seeing? This is disaster after disaster. Um, and I think they're starting to get found out now that they're full of hot air half the time. Um, and because politics, especially over the last 10 years, has, has become sound bites and snippets, you know, it's, we go through focus groups and see what catches attention. And you get to a point where words end up having no meaning anymore. So you've got these folk who've caused chaos. Uh, I mean, chaos across the world, never mind just Britain. And yet they're standing there going, we're the adults, as you say. We, we are the only party that can be trusted with the economy. Liz Truss is the only person who's tanked the economy in a day. Like that, if that's what your greatest achievement is and you've only been in power for two weeks or something, then God help us if she stays in power. I think that's a really important point you've made there about the, the reputational significance of this moment. The rest of the world is kind of looking at the last two, six weeks in Britain and going, what on earth is happening? in your country? I would actually take it back further than that. I think it, when Brexit happened, I think that's when the rest of the world suddenly went, oh, something's happening in Britain, and started to take a step back. You know, and it, it ended up in a position like Liz Truss saying, I've not decided yet whether uh, <laughs> the President of France is a, a friend or foe. You're like, is this your idea of diplomacy? That, it's incredible, incredible. So it, I think since 2016, we've just seen standards in that place get lower and lower and lower. And I don't think many folks thought that was possible after the expenses scandal and things. And it's, it, when you think there's been a financial crash 
in this century and yet we're now in a worse position than them. That's, I mean, you've got to have a talent to run things that badly. But for you then, uh, you know, the topic of conversation we have for the last 10 minutes, presumably every single one of them is an argument in favour of an independent Scotland, right? <laughs> I would say so, yes. <laughs> Even just, a, I'll take a general election just now, yeah, you yeah. know, because uh, I, I do... You think that's likely right now, a general election? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I can't see it happening because that would be Turkey's vote for Christmas. Um, and... I've made no secret of the fact I think the Conservative Party is filled with some of the most selfish people under the sun. So there's no chance that they're going to vote to lose their own seats. Um, but in a similar vein, <laughs> given some of the a few conversations I've had with Conservatives, there's a couple of them that are like, you know what, we'd rather take it than carry on being part of this. Um, so it's very, it's on a, a sugary peg, put it that way just now. Even staff in there who go to great lengths to stay impartial even they're saying to you my god this is bad i've been here 40 years and i've never seen it like this it's incredible so you know the, the world is talking about britain right now for all of the wrong reasons and we are slowly corroding every goodwill relationship that we have left um and we just we can't afford to keep doing that we just can't and it's not just in Westminster and in Scotland that passions are running high. In Wales, Mark Drakeford had a, a rare display of temper when pushed to the brink by a Tory politician who had criticised the performance of the health service in a way that put the blame on the workers rather than the economic situation they're working within. And Mark wasn't having it. Well, so it's the... Uh prescription of the Welsh Government is to invest more money in the ambulance service, to have more staff working in the ambulance service, to have a wider range of people able to provide those services and for ambulances to know that when they arrive at hospitals that the hospital will be in a position to receive that patient so that the ambulance can get back on the road again and attend in a timely way to other people who are waiting. That is the prescription of the Welsh Government. Uh, what are people who work in the service? And as I say, they'll have heard the way that the members describe the service they provide this afternoon. What do they face? They, 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 let's, let's, he has chosen to use that language this afternoon. He didn't, yeah, yeah, he, and you have chosen to use that language here this afternoon. And what do those people face? They've had cuts to their pay because of the policy of your government. And now, now they face cuts to the budget that the health service itself will have at its disposal. It is shocking. It is absolutely shocking to me that you think that you can turn up here this afternoon with a mess that your party has made to the budget of this country, to the reputation of this country around the world, that you promise those people that there will be more to come and you think you turn up here this afternoon and claim some sort of moral high ground? What sort of world do you belong in? Meanwhile, things were rapidly coming to a head with Liz Truss and she took the only action she could take, which was throwing Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng under the bus. She sacked him for carrying out her instructions. How very Tory. Not unreasonably, Keir Starmer tabled an urgent question for the Prime Minister, asking her to explain what was going on. 
And we'd all hoped we'd seen the last of that Jeremy Hunt. I now call the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, with his urgent question. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To ask the Prime Minister to make a statement on the replacement of the Chancellor of the Exchequer during the current economic situation. (laughs) Mr Speaker, with, with with apologies to the Leader of the Opposition and the House, the PM is detained on urgent business. Now, whilst you could feel whatever was left of Liz Truss's authority evaporating in the air, Penny Morden seemed to be quite enjoying herself, and she decided to have a bit of a go at Keir, which did make me wonder if she was perhaps auditioning for a job. The honourable, right honourable gentleman opposite has reversed his position on economic justice, social justice, climate change, promoting peace and human rights, common ownership, defending migrants' rights, strengthening the rights of uh, workers and trade unions, radical devolution of power, wealth and opportunity, equality and effective opposition to the Tories. And then Labour's Stella Creasy came up with what, for me, I think summed up the whole afternoon and the whole situation with this one abiding image. The Leader of the House suggests that we should be grateful that the Prime Minister has made a difficult decision, and I presume she means grateful that she's stuck to it, given the number of U-turns that we've seen over the last couple of days. But that's the job, making difficult decisions. There are difficult decisions to be made about what is happening in Ukraine, about the fact that President Putin has nuclear weapons, about the chaos caused by Brexit, gang crime, the climate crisis, Ebola in Africa... And all we know right now is, unless she tells us otherwise, that the Prime Minister is cowering under her desk and asking for it all to go away. Isn't it about time she did and let somebody else who can make decisions in the British national interest get in charge instead? Well, the Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the... was really quite bizarre and while Penny Morden was holding court really for probably about an hour or so and explaining why Liz Truss wasn't there and how nobody could read anything into this suddenly Liz Truss appeared sort of slunk into the debating chamber sat down didn't say anything sat there staring ahead of her with a dazed expression on her face which I mean she certainly looked to me as if she might have been medicated in some way And she stayed there for about another 15 minutes until the moment that SNP's Alison Thulis got up to speak. And then both Truss and Mordaunt got up and left, just as Alison started speaking. The same old rude, dismissive, contemptuous playground tactics and generally detestable behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. Can I come to SNP spokesperson Alison Thulis? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I see that the Prime Minister has been uh, urgently running off to, to something else rather than staying to listen. Mr. Mr. Speaker, when the previous Chancellor came to give his mini budget three long weeks ago, I called it economic chaos. What an understatement that turned out to be. I'm not sure words have yet been invented to describe the scale of the unmitigated disaster which the Prime Minister and her Chancellors have created in the past 24 days. 
We're back where we started, significantly worse off due to Tory incompetence. And isn't it just as well that in Scotland, the Scottish Government didn't take the advice of um, Tory MPs to copy and paste before the front bench here deletes all? And people will be paying the price for this for many years to come through higher interest and borrowing rates. Will he apologise for this increased cost that his colleagues have inflicted upon people? And he has not been clear at all. Will he confirm the status of the banker's bonus cap? Has it been scrapped or has it not been scrapped? There is little by way of detail from the current Chancellor on doubling down on austerity and what that will mean for people. But the Institute for Government and SIPFA have been clear that there is no fat left to cut after a lost decade for public services under the Tories. So where does the current Chancellor expect to make these cuts, these efficiency savings? We know what he means when he says it. We already know the terrible price of austerity because Glasgow Centre for Population Health have attributed 330,000 excess deaths to Tory austerity policies, an unacceptable human cost. Again and again, the Tories bring forward harmful policies they never feel the consequences of. And we know that guarantees mean nothing under the Tories either. The so-called energy price guarantee turns out to be worth six months, not two years. A cliff edge looming next April. National Energy Action have said that many vulnerable people were holding on by their fingertips. Government must be very, very careful. It doesn't prize them away. So can you tell us exactly what will happen for households in April? The scale of increases make almost everybody vulnerable, except perhaps as banker pals. And what will happen to the most vulnerable when inflation soars as a result of the, spi- the return of spiralling energy costs. The previous Chancellor never got around to telling me what will happen to business energy costs at the end of their six-month reprieve. So can the current Chancellor tell me what support businesses uh, signing impossibly expensive contracts as we speak can expect? And will this current Chancellor, as the former, former, former Chancellor did, commit to operating benefits with the rate of inflation? And we also increase support to those languishing in the asylum system and end the punishing no recourse to public funds regime. Will he cancel the benefit cap and scrap the two-child limit, which is trapping so many children in poverty? Where is his compassion for them? Will he invest in renewables, carbon capture and storage, and a comprehensive energy efficiency and insulation package? And finally, Mr Speaker, does he understand, does he really understand, when looking at broke, broken Britain, the chaos that the Tories have wreaked and the prospect of a bleak Brexit future under both Labour and the Tories, that more and more of Scotland's people are looking at the comprehensive independence perspectives set out by the First Minister today and moving towards the vision of a fairer, greener, more prosperous Scotland back in the heart of Europe where we belong. But we got the last laugh. She staggered on for maybe another week or so and then the inevitable lectern was placed outside of Downing Street. And Liz went down in history as the shortest ever serving Prime Minister after only 45 days in office. 45 awful days. Rumour has it that she was actually quite relieved. Well, I can believe that. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. 
and we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. So Liz Truss's premiership there, so short she didn't even manage to fit in a phone call to the First Minister. Now Nicola Sturgeon just has to wait for Prime Minister number five. Here is her response to Liz's resignation. Well, this is an almighty mess and it's people, the length and breadth of the UK, who are paying the price of this. You know, I think Liz Truss's early resignation uh, as Prime Minister was probably inevitable the moment she walked into Downing Street. But Liz Truss isn't the problem here. She's the symptom of a much more fundamental problem. You know, a, a broken Tory party, certainly, but also a broken UK political system. Uh, what needs to happen now? Well, on a UK level, there must be a general election. It is a democratic necessity. The idea that the Tories can unite behind a prime minister now, uh, any prime minister, let alone one that is in the public interest, I think is for the birds. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, the UK now needs to have a democratic choice uh, over its next prime minister. There's even ludicrous suggestions this afternoon that Boris Johnson is going to try to make a comeback. Uh, so that's what, what needs to happen immediately. Of course, for Scotland, that doesn't really solve the fundamental problem because Scotland's votes don't determine the outcome of UK general elections. So as long as we're part of this Westminster system, we're always going to be vulnerable to getting prime ministers we don't vote for implementing policies that we don't support and do real damage to the country. For Scotland, the only way we get prime ministers and governments that the greater number of us vote for is to be independent. And I think the democratic case for independence is growing literally with every hour that passes. So the next step in the long, slow Tory car crash into oblivion is they have to go footering around in the very, very shallow talent puddle and try and find some alternative prime ministers to foist on us for weeks, who knows how long. So first call, there was the ever ambitious and slightly slimy billionaire Rishi Sunak. He was the first to put his hat in the ring, followed by Penny Mordaunt, who, as we say, was certainly auditioning for the part in the House of Commons over the last couple of days, announcing herself as a, a fresh start, as if she hadn't held ministerial and cabinet positions in the Tory government over the last 12 years. That's an interesting concept of fresh start. And then to put the icing on the cake, Boris Johnson, who only weeks ago was drummed out of town in disgrace and then spent the next intervening time on holiday, on a speaking tour, getting lots of money, soaking up the sun, decided he would come back and have another crack at it. Well, feeding frenzy with the press and Tory MPs who happened to be Johnson backers and there was an awful lot of social media saying how wonderful it would be and then there was Johnson announced that he'd reached the threshold of a hundred nominations but then he didn't think the time was right so just as all his backers went into print writing articles for the Telegraph on what a wonderful PM Johnson would make this time around he drops out of the race and hadn't mentioned it to them. So yet another load of guys finding out that you should never, ever, ever trust this man. 
However, today's big news is that Penny Mordaunt has also dropped out. So that leaves in the um, the awful talent competition race to the bottom of the least worst candidate appears to be Rishi Sunak. Thin-skinned billionaire Rishi Sunak. He hasn't said anything during this period at all, but he did give us some idea as to his views in the leadership hustings, which he lost in the race with, what was the name again, that PM we only had for four? Oh yeah, Liz Truss, her. And this is what he had to say back then. Isn't it time for you also, perhaps tonight, to embrace your supporter David Davis's plan to instruct Border Force and the Royal Navy to push those floating dinghies back? It is trickier to implement that in the channel and given the boats that we're faced with compared to how the Australians do it where they are. But look, no option should be off the table. It's absolutely shocking and a policy which both breaks international law and puts lives at risk. We need to move away from the ECHR definition of asylum, right? It is, yes, you're right, we should clap that because it's important, right? It is far too broad and allows lefty lawyers to exploit it and frustrate our efforts. There is no ECHR definition of asylum. The ECHR is human rights, and the rights that may constitute barriers to removing an asylum seeker are Article 2, which guarantees the right to life, and Article 3, which prohibits torture, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Which bit of that is not too broad? And to justify it, Sunak jumps on the Johnson Patel bandwagon of blaming what he calls lefty lawyers, lefty lawyers, lefty lawyers. And he does it despite Johnson and Patel having been warned using dangerous language like this could put the lives of lawyers and court staff at risk. What's the number one challenge other than energy costs? It's getting access to workers and getting people to actually work. And I strongly believe that part of the answer to this problem is being much tougher on our welfare system. Again, it's absolutely shocking. Sunak is shamelessly blaming benefit claimants for high inflation labour shortages. And if there are hours to do, if there's a job going, people should have to take the job. Well, imagine the shock when he finds out the majority of people claiming benefits are either in work or seeking work. Many are going without food every day just so they can feed their kids. And even Larry the Cat knows one of the principal reasons we now have high inflation labour shortages is this. I have a particular responsibility when it comes to taking back control. It is to end the free movement of people once and for all. We clearly have a problem with human rights law in this country that is making it difficult for us to achieve our objectives. And it's more thanks to Peter Stefanovic for that compilation. Rishi also, I'm not going to call him Rishi, sounds like he's my pal, he isn't, Sunak also made an astonishing admission in one of the leafy Tory southern England suburbs when he explained to them how he was re-diverting cash from all those run-down places with poor people in them so that the rich folks got their fair share. Interesting. I managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. But that's it from Bits and Pieces for this month and don't forget to join us again next week on Scottish Independence Podcasts for the next normal Friday episode and look out for those bonus Tuesdays as well. Thanks for listening. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. 
Aber wir sind mit Sand. 